0: Hello, hello everybody. Thank you for coming. I hope you like it. Here we go. Oh, just before we start, I'll say this. It's the last night um, here. It's been a delight. Um, And it's the last night ever um, of this show, not... (laughs) God. God, imagine if that was how you found out. Did <laughs> you just do a bumbling bit of admin at the start of a show? Oh, God, I've got so much left to do. Yeah, well, you've blown it. This is it. So you may as well kick back and relax. We go. Oh, yeah.
1: So I'd like to say thank you to the people here, there. There we go.
0: I I once heard a story about myself and I didn't recognise it. What happened was a friend of mine called Izzy came to my house for some food and at one point in the meal she said,
1: You got this woman to come to your hotel room in the middle of the night and when she came in you were sitting on a chair.
0: Now the problem with ever telling anyone anything about yourself is that any single facet of a life articulated in isolation is lent an undue weight and prominence in someone else's understanding of that life. So when someone says, to you, just tell me a bit about yourself, that is a potentially risky situation with far-reaching consequences. If someone says to me, oh, tell me a bit about yourself, I could legitimately say to that person, well, this morning I went for a swim, had a lovely sandwich at lunchtime. That person would then be well within their rights to walk away thinking, well, that swimmer is obsessed with sandwiches. But more than that, I don't think we're best placed to articulate anything about ourselves because we're stuck in the middle of ourselves. We've got no no perspective on it. I quite often think that what life is is like an interminable version of that party game where you've got a post-it note on your head with a famous person's name written on it you have to ask other people questions to ascertain the name written on your head but there's no post-it note there's no famous person's name it's just you walking up to strangers over the course of decades and asking am I nice I think that's part of the reason people Google themselves. I don't think it's as relentlessly ego-driven as it initially seems. I think it's part of the same fascinated frustration we're experiencing our lives from the outside. That makes it very hard not to have a look in any reflective surface you encounter. Very hard to resist that urge. Walk past a big, shiny shop window. Think to yourself, I'll just have a quick look in that. Oh dear. Oh no. Now of course there's an argument that you shouldn't Google yourself because it's bad for the soul, but that argument could equally be, well you shouldn't look in mirrors then, because that's bad for the soul. Now that's not an invalid argument, but you have to accept there are consequences to that sort of stipulation. By all means, don't look in mirrors. But you run the risk of walking round all day with food on your face. Excuse me, mate, you got a bit of um you got a little bit of beef on your head. Yeah, well I don't look in mirrors, so. Right, but you've got like a sausage sticking out of either ear and a chip up your nose. Yeah, well, like I say, my friend, I don't look in mirrors. That that can't be the only explanation for this. (laughs) If anything, that makes this level of accuracy all the more unfathomable. I think most people with access to Google will at some point have Googled themselves. I dare say most people in this room have at some point Googled themselves, but being the plebeian nobodies you largely are, I should imagine that's been a fruitless, almost harrowing exercise. (laughs) I should imagine that what happens when the majority of you good people Google yourselves is that the internet shrugs. (laughs) Either that or it's a litany of the social media networks you cling onto to to give your life some semblance of meaning or value, whereas when I Google myself, get this, it's people I don't know saying I'm awesome. Imagine that. (laughs) I found genuinely amazing things by Googling my own name. Oddly expansive consequences for such a self-involved activity. I found that on the popular dating website, Guardian Soulmates, people quite often articulate the sort of person they either are and or would like to meet by citing my name and work. Now clearly that is fucking awesome. (laughs) But it's also a bit frustrating. I mean, I can't then join that website and be like, guys. Turns out that fantasy dinner party is disappointingly possible. (laughs) Couple of things you need to know before I turn up. One, I'm allergic to nuts. Two, I'm conversationally racist. See you on the seventh. (laughs) I found genuinely amazing things by Googling my own name. I found a boy called Daniel Kitson. I think he's, uh, he's just over 17 years old now. He's on Twitter and about six months ago now, he tweeted that he was annoyed with his duvet cover because it was too big for his duvet and he was finding that situation irritating and uncomfortable. And I was like, I know exactly what he's talking about, but I've never heard anyone else articulate that with such a level of clarity. And that is classic Daniel Kitson. Don't get me wrong, it's not all positive online, not by any means. You could very easily walk away from Googling my name convinced I was an arrogant recluse who was obsessed with rimming. Well, two things there. Firstly, rimming is, by its very nature, an inherently sociable enterprise. <laughs> Secondly, it's quite hard to maintain a workable level of arrogance when you've got your tongue in someone's arse <laughs> It is odd when you read something about yourself, or hear something about yourself that's got no truth in it at all. I'm not a recluse, I don't think that's true. I think I'm probably anti-social. I think that that, that that probably is fair. I probably am antisocial. I do sometimes wonder if I actually am antisocial, or if it just feels more polite to maintain that reputation rather than consistently rejecting individual offers of company on a case-by-case basis. It is odd, though, when you find something about yourself that's got no truth in it at all. I found online about 10 years ago, a woman claiming that I once played Naked Scrabble with her to get her into bed. Not true. Have never done that. Will never do that. Too much respect for the game. <laughs> Wouldn't even get my cock out playing Cluedo. And that's me. That's one of my rules. You'll live your life. I didn't come here to preach. Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong, I take no pride in the amount that I Google myself. It feels like it must be indicative of a failing life in some way, that like there must be something missing from my life, be that thing joy or purpose or meaning or love or a dog. I do feel like I'd Google myself significantly less if I had a dog, not least because that dog would be looking at me whilst I was doing it, as if to say, I don't think you should be doing that, mate. And I'd be looking at the dog as if to say, well, I'm 90% certain I'm projecting that opinion. Still, but it's a valid point, me by proxy, well made. That's what I'd call the dog, I'd call the dog proxy. I do feel that if I, if I had a dog, it'd put some, some shape into my days, some shape into my weeks. I've got no shape in my time. It's just an endless splodge of time, quite often. I don't even notice when it's Sunday. Imagine that, you miserable nine to five wage slaves. A grown man not noticing the weekend, that's like a six-year-old boy saying, was it Christmas, I've no idea. (laughs) The closest I've got to a daily routine is about two o'clock in the morning, every morning, I get an automated spam email from Time Out London, detailing the most recent money-off deals available to me. I don't open it, I delete it, and I think, another day done. And that's it, I just don't have a normal structure in my life. I don't have a normal life, I think that's fair to say. Now, I deliberately used the word normal there, not the word proper. That's a deliberate distinction I've made there. People quite often use those words as though they're interchangeable, but they're absolutely not. You know, Proper is a pejorative. Normal isn't a pejorative. Normality is a provable state within any given context. Proper absolutely is a pejorative. It's a value judgment. If you make someone a birthday cake and they say, that's not a proper birthday cake, they're being a dick, you've made them a cake. It doesn't matter if it's a piece of meat with a candle sticking out of it. You've made them a cake, and they need to locate some grace, ASAP. But normality is a provable state within any given context. And yet people act as though it's a value judgment. they like, who are you to tell me what's normal? Who even knows what normal even means anymore? Who are you to tell me what's normal? I'm a statistician, settle down. <laughs> But I think it's fair to say that I don't really live a, a normal life. I think quite often people who do live a sort of quote-unquote normal life will look upon people who 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 don't live that life as though they're failing in some way, as though this couldn't possibly be a sequence of different choices and decisions, it must be a litany of blunders that's led to this point. You know, for example, my next door neighbours have both got kids, whereas I've got a pool table. And I think my neighbours would see my pool table, as indicative of a failing life, as a poor substitute for their kids. But I would counter that with the argument that you can't really get off with someone up against a child. (laughs) And more than that, when I was 16 years old, the idea of having a pool table of your own, in your own house, that you could play on whenever you want, that was the dream. That was the impossible dream. You know? When I was 16 years old, Me and my friend Sam played pool on a pub pool table almost every day in the village where we lived. Three tenpence pieces went into the table, all the balls came out, a wonderful time was had. After about two months of playing pool on that table almost every day, we discovered that table worked perfectly well if you only put one tenpence piece in the leftmost slot. Holy fucking shit. That was one of the most exciting discoveries I've experienced to this very day, and I've got three nipples. We were like, okay, play it cool, play it cool. Strictly speaking, I don't think it is illegal what we're doing here, underpaying for pool, but morally it's definitely a grey area. So play it cool, play it cool. Anyway, after a couple more months of playing pool on that table every day for 10p a game, we discovered that table worked perfectly well without putting any money in it at all. So we weren't the only people playing it cool in that particular pub. Once, apparently, according to my friend Sam, I have no memory of this. It's very odd. When someone's got a memory of your life, you can't find it anywhere in your head. He insists that this happened. Apparently once we went in, I had shorts on, and one of the old men at the bar turned to me and said, Hey, are those long short ones or short long ones? And I've got no memory of this, but apparently I turned to him and said, I don't know, but i have got my legs in. Or at least that's what I thought I said, until my friend Sam saw this show about eight weeks ago now, and afterwards said to me, you do realise that's not what you said? And I said, what do you mean? He said, what you said is, I don't know, but they're made of cotton! (laughs) I think either way my point is sound. But back then, the idea of having a pool table of your own in your own house, that was it. That was the dream. And I've done it, guys. In a very real sense, I'm I'm living the dream. I mean, of course, my friends are increasingly not really available to play pool. They've moved away or they've got married or they've got kids or a job that means they're not available to play pool as and when I want to play pool. So I've had to find a way of playing pool alone that has all the same tension An enjoyment of normal pool. I've done it. What you do is you scatter the balls across the tabletop in a haphazard fashion. And then you start potting the balls, and the aim is to clear the table any order you want, leave the black to last, and you can only miss three times. And I can feel a few of you being like, Daniel, that sounds like a lot of fun. Can't wait to give it a try at the earliest opportunity I get. Quick question, if I miss a fourth time, is that the end of the game, have I got to start all over again? Guys, that is a phenomenally perceptive question. And... (laughs) not a lot of audiences implicitly ask it. I'm delighted to clarify that for you. No. You don't have to start again if you miss a fourth time or a fifth time for that matter because you can eradicate a miss from the miss tally by successfully executing a double or a plant. You're very welcome, take that. Take that, use it. If you ever find yourselves quite affluent but utterly alone, use that. I just don't have the, those normal structures in my life that maintain contact with my friends through this tricky stage of adulthood where people tend to drift away from each other and into the lives they've built for themselves. I'm not on Twitter, I'm not on Facebook, I not have kids and so I don't see my friends through my kids, I don't have a job that means I go to a specific place at a specific time and see specific people, you know. Increasingly, my conversations with my friends, my closest friends can start along the lines of uh, so, what's your news? I haven't got a clue what my news... Who knows what their news is on a daily basis? Who, who keeps track of what's happening in case of a chat? So, what's your news? I got dressed and I'm here. Any further back than that, it's a blur of heartbreak, joy and tedium that I can't force into bullet points. So, h- how long's it been? Ooh, how long's it been? There's a lot of that. There's a lot of working out how long it's...
2: How long's it... Ooh, how long's... Mmm...
0: Oh, about two and a half years? Yeah, that makes sense. About two and a half years. I mean, I didn't have Tim then, did I? And he's two now, so yeah, about, about two and a half years, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, that does make sense, actually, two and a half years. I mean, I wasn't drinking coffee then, was I? And I drink coffee now, so. I mean, everyone's got stuff going on. No one's sleeping as well as they once were. <laughs> don't get me wrong, it's not a miserable life of turgid isolation, There's sort of odd glimmers of triumph in a solitary life. About four months ago, I had a cough, and it was keeping me awake at bedtime. And then one night, I remembered that not only had I exercised the adult foresight to acquire cough medicine before contracting a cough, but I knew exactly where I'd put it in my house. So I got out of bed, went to the bathroom, opened the cabinet, got the medicine out, had a swig of it, pumped it back in, closed the cabinet, got back into bed. By the time I got back into bed, I was so delighted by how well I'd handled that situation, couldn't sleep for half an hour. (laughs) I keep finding a light left on in my house. It's always the same light, it's on the right hand side of the bathroom mirror as I look at it, and I don't remember turning it on, but it's always on. I'm like, oh, I don't remember turning that on, I'll turn it off. About four months ago, it occurred to me for the first time that maybe somebody else was secretly living in my house. They were sneaking out the back door when I was coming in the front door. They were upstairs when I was downstairs. They were in the kitchen when I was in the bathroom. They were using the VCR when I was enjoying the fax machine. And I genuinely found this paranoid little delusion quite comforting. I was like, it's nice, isn't it, how we get along. No one getting in anyone's way. It's nice. It's good. You know, it's not a miserable life, not by any means. It's an exhilarating autonomy to a life of isolation at times, you know. Let's say, for example, it's about 9 o'clock at night, right? I'm quite sleepy, but I quite fancy watching a couple of films back to back. I've had this planned all day, but now it's got to 9 o'clock. I am quite sleepy, so maybe I should go to bed. It's a legitimate adult bedtime. Any time post 9 is a legitimate grown-up bedtime. I probably should go to bed. I definitely could go to bed. I probably should go to bed, yeah. But I'll tell you what else I could do. I could have a fucking coffee. Oh, you heard me. I do what I want, yeah? I do what I want. I live on my own. I've got no one looking at me whilst I'm grinding the beans, saying, are you sure you should be doing that? You're not going to sleep well. Oh, really? I never sleep well, yeah? Yeah? I'm too lonely and sad to sleep well. If I want a night java, I'll have a fucking night java. I don't fear the bean after dark. There is no more optimistic a drink than a coffee at nine. This is gonna be a massive night. Either that or a long, increasingly frustrating one tinged with heartburn and diarrhea. Either way, I'm on board. Having said that, I did recently discover that I can only really have one cup of coffee a day over a prolonged period of time. Any more than that, over a prolonged period of time and I go fucking mental. But for the first week or so of going fucking mental, doesn't feel like going fucking mental, feels like taking care of business. Feels like slam dunking the shit out of life. I'm like, I don't know why people are so concerned about too much caffeine. I'm on top of my to-do list. I'm engaged with strangers in the street. I'm conversationally sparkling. Oh, hang on, I just ate a curry and then had a panic attack. My problem now is that I now know enough about coffee. I'm a bit of a dick about coffee now, and I don't want to waste my one daily rationed coffee on a bad coffee. And now I can tell from watching someone make a coffee in a coffee shop if it's going to be shit or not. So I'm quite often standing there in a coffee shop watching someone make a coffee, thinking, I'm not going to drink this, I'm going to put this straight in the bin. And I do. Not in front of them, I'm not a monster, I'm not like, there you go, there's your money, and here's your hard work. Where it belongs maybe next time you'll have the common courtesy to wipe out the Porter you piece of shit. <laughs> and I can spend my time fixating about the quality of coffee, you know, largely because I don't have a practical imperative in my life. I've got nothing in my life, no responsibility, no structure to stop me thinking about things, you know. And I'm not saying, oh guys, I think too much. Oh, I really overthink things, that's my problem. I'm not saying that, largely because I think what people mean when they say that is, oh guys, If anything, I'm too much of a legend. Oh, God, oh, I can't find the off switch for my awesome. It is a curse more than a gift, seriously. Thinky, think, think, ledge, ledge, ledge. I'm not saying that, you know, but I don't have anyone or anything in my life to stop me thinking. I can spend days, weeks, months, years thinking about things and not reaching any workable conclusions, you know. I don't feel like I've completed a thought process since 2008. Up until 2008, I was slam dunking the thoughts. I was like, beginning of a thought, middle of a thought, end of a thought, thought thinked, popping on the pile, daddy going gone a pondering. Now, I'm like, what's that? Is that the beginning of a new thought? Is that the end of a previous one? Is that the midsection of a thought from five years ago? I have two types of thought process, it seems. One leads to an utterly redundant conclusion. One leads back to the start of itself and no conclusion at all. So an example of the first type is, ah, uh, oh, You know how people say you've got to dot the I's and cross the T's? Well, you haven't, have you? Because they've already been dotted and crossed, otherwise they wouldn't be I's and T's. If you're dotting I's and crossing T's, what you're doing there is making F's and um umlauts. That is undeniably a conclusion. It is also undeniably fucking useless, right? That's an example of the first type of thought process. An example of the second type just leads back to the start of itself, in a sort of pointless loop of thought is, um, I wonder if I'm a dickhead, I wonder if I'm a dickhead. No, 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 I don't think I can be a dickhead. I think the very fact that I'm asking myself if I am a dickhead is probably the only evidence I need to conclude that I'm not a dickhead because the dickhead would never ask themselves if they were a dickhead. So no, no, I'm not a dickhead, however, If there's one thing that we know about dickheads, it's that dickheads don't think they're dickheads. So maybe the fact that I just proved to myself that I'm not a dickhead is in fact the only evidence I need to conclude that I am a dickhead. I wonder if I'm a dickhead, I'm back at the start of the same thought and I'm 36 years old. But I think about things to to understand them. I want to understand myself. I want to understand life I want to understand the world, you know I've got no interest in being right for the sake of being right. I've got no interest in winning a debate I've got no interest in reaching a conclusion for the sake of reaching a conclusion I've got no interest in in being right to make someone else wrong I just want to know I want to understand, you know, although having said that I do think it's important to maintain the clarity of the epistemological hierarchy at all times And so if if someone starts telling me something that I already know that I've known for years. I don't want that person walking away thinking they're imparting to me the gift of fresh information, fresh virgin knowledge into my, you know, noggin. I don't want that happening. And so I'll give it a lot of Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, 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 yeah, 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 yeah. This is familiar. (laughs) And when they finish, whatever they've got to say, I'll say something along the lines of, yeah, but it's not as simple as that. Hmm? which implies I broadly agree with them, but in a more complex and engaged way. In Crystal Palace, where I live, there's a cafe that I've been going into for about 13 years. Every few months, I've got a new member of staff. I walk in, this member of staff speaks to me like I've never been there before, and I find that situation oddly and disproportionately infuriating. I'm like, listen, mate, I'm not the newcomer here, my friend. You're the newcomer here, so let's drop that tone for a start off, shall we? Yeah, I've been coming into this place for 13 fucking years. I've yeah? Yeah? been looking at the same unchanging specials board for the best part of a fucking decade. There is nothing you can fucking tell me about this fucking place that I don't already fucking know. Okay? Now that being said, what is the soup of the day? <laughs> but generally, I've got no interest in in being right for the sake of being right. I want to know, I want to understand, and I want that moment of understanding to come from within. I want to work it out. I don't want someone else to tell me. I want to work it out for myself. I want that moment of refinement, that moment of, of understanding to come from me. You know, I've got this odd faith in my own ability to work things out. As a 16-year-old boy walking to maths exams, I would genuinely comfort myself with the delusional notion that if I couldn't remember Pythagoras theorem, didn't matter, I'd just work it out. If it was within the purview of humanity to crack that code, as it quite clearly was, I should simply set ten minutes aside at the start of the exam to crack it again, and then I would apply that information to the puzzles they've provided. No problem. No problem. It's this ridiculous refusal to stand on the shoulders of giants. I'm like, no, no, I'm fine down here with a view of your knees and the grass, thank you which means I have these these blinding moments of realisation that are to me illuminatory, electrifying, exhilarating and are to other people laughably obvious and basic about four months ago I googled the phrase all knowledge is assumption just in case I'd had a brand new thought I had not done that that has been covered at quite some length it turns out I do think assumption gets a bad name though, you know, people are like, oh, when you assume, you make an ass out of you and me, yeah, or alternatively, when you assume, you make a reasonable supposition based on the limited evidence currently available, how's that? I think the problem is that phrase, when you assume you make an ass you and me, it's dangerously catchy. Lots of truisms are dangerously catchy. You see, I think there's three types of truism. The first type of truism is the, uh, the generalisation type, that's things like, well, you've got to be cruel to be kind. I feel like at some point in history, the word sometimes has dropped off the beginning of that sentence. Because with the word sometimes, that is a valuable, counterintuitive life lesson. Without the word sometimes, that is a dangerous precedent to set for yourself. Well, you've got to be cruel to be kind, so I've killed your dog and hidden your dad. Because it's your birthday, it's a special day. That's the first type. The second type of truism is the implication of a causal relationship that isn't actually there. That's things like, uh, well, if you keep believing and hold on to your dreams, amazing things can happen. Well, yeah, but that's because amazing things can happen. (laughs) It's got nothing to do with the first half of that statement. If you sleep till noon and piss in a bucket, amazing things can happen. (laughs) The third type of truism is, um, is part of the truth masquerading as the entirety of the truth. That's things like, um, well, you can't take it with you, which of course means you can't take your fiscal goods, your financial wherewithal with you when you die. So why waste your precious moments on this earth accruing such trifles when your time could be better spent building stronger bonds with the people you care about most in the world? But you know what else you can't take with you? Strong bonds with the people you care about most in the world. There's a definite decision to be made, right? but I think the problem is that those phrases are too catchy they deal with necessarily complex areas but they must have had complexity stripped out of them to enable them to scan better or to rhyme I think it's unhelpful, I think it's misleading I think it's dangerous or to put it another way if it's snappy, it's crappy that's one of mine take that, use it, spread it with credit that's another one, that's one of mine that's for when you want your work to proliferate while still maintaining a solid grip on the copyright but so much of what we know about the world is assumed so much of what we know we can't prove you know you can't prove that everybody will die right it's just a massive universal assumption based on overwhelming anecdotal evidence but you can't prove it you can't prove that everybody will die you can't prove that everybody has died all you can prove is that everybody who has died is dead and to prove that you need a spade a week off work and some tickling gloves You can't prove that all geese are white by accruing white geese, right? That's the point. It doesn't matter how many white geese you've trapped in your specially constructed white goose shed, all it takes is a single black goose to waddle past. Your shed is at best a redundant folly, or at worst a demonstrably cruel health and safety violation and I find that fascinating because it means it's a legitimate response to the world to life to, to myself to question things I think I know about everything you know? and I can spend my time doing this largely because I don't have a sort of practical imperative a governing responsibility in my life You know, be that thing a, a job or a belief system or a relationship or a child I think a child is sort of archetypal one it's a sort of assumed aspiration in a normal life a child You know, I get people saying to me Do you want kids? And sort of odd tone of assumption in their voice, you know. Do you want kids? Do you want kids? Sort of odd, I can't say to people, when are you gonna get a pool table? (laughs) I'm assuming it's inevitable, so quick tip from me to you, get it whilst you're still young, have a lot more fun with it, all right? And obviously, you know, you can say what you like about parenting and it does undeniably lead to a certain smug self-regard in some people. They get peculiarly boastful about odd things, you know. You can't imagine the love in me! (laughs) Nor would I presume to. But by the same token, you can't imagine having to come up with more than one excuse for not going to things. So, you know, it all evens out over a lifetime, I'd say. you can't imagine what it's like to have a child. No, I can't imagine what it's like to have a child, largely because I've never had a child. That's the nature of our imagination. Our imagination is restricted by our own previous experience, by the parameters of what we know. We can't imagine anything we've got zero previous experience of. That's not how our imagination works. All we can do is reconfigure our existing experience and knowledge in an imaginative or creative way. We can't imagine anything we've got zero previous experience of. People are like, oh, really? All right, check this out then. A dog with a cat's head and wings. Boom. Explain that mate, because I've never seen one of them, and I've been looking, so explain that. Go on, explain that. Alright, well you have seen a dog and a cat and a bird, so... I have, yeah, that is a valid point. Valid point, skillfully articulated. I feel a bit like I walked into a trap there. Oh, hang on, it's got a lion's dick. Boom! Explain that, Columbo. That's been in every night of the tour. Every night of the tour, it's got that exact reaction. (laughs) (laughs) It really makes me giggle. (laughs) From the start to the end, there's been better lines that haven't made it this far. That is the equivalent of a journeyman midfielder. That joke is crucial to the show in ways no one really understands. So, no, I can't imagine what it's like to have a child because I've never had a child. I have had a mouse. All I can do is imagine it's like that, but substantially more so. But, you know, say what you like about parenting. It undeniably puts genuine responsibility into a life. Genuine responsibility. If you don't feed that, it dies. You can't spend a day wondering if you're a dickhead. Oh, hello, darling. A bit of bad news. Um, The kids are dead. I've been having a think. Yeah, this whole dickhead conundrum, yeah. I mean, I still haven't reached a satisfactory conclusion either way, if I'm honest. I mean, clearly, this whole sitch is a big tick in the dickhead column, but still... Still a lot of thinking to be done it puts genuine responsibility in a life and through that responsibility comes a sense of purpose, a sense of identity, a sense of meaning, you know, you know who you are, you know why you're here, you know what you're doing, you know, for a certain amount of time of course and Then the kids grow up and they leave home and you're left on your own not knowing who you are, what the point is in anything all over again, you know, sitting there on your own in your empty nest, staring at the wall thinking, I'm gonna get a lathe you see, I used to think that, that everyone was a mess until they just weren't a mess. There was a definite linear progression. Everyone started off as a mess, then someone or something happened and fixed us and we became not a mess henceforth, you know. Like, like quinoa. No one says quinoa to begin with. The first time you say quinoa, you say quinoa. And you keep saying quinoa until someone gently takes you aside and tells you that it's not quinoa. And I feel like that's happening for a lot of you now. (laughs) And you feel foolish and embarrassed and it's like hyperbole all over again. And I used to think that that's what it was like, that everyone started off as a mess and suddenly somehow we became not a mess. Now what I think is that maybe everyone's a mess. Maybe that's the truth of who we are, we're all just a confused, terrified mess. And we have brief periods away from that where we're distracted by by love or joy or purpose or responsibility. But that can only last as long as a song or a holiday or a relationship. And sooner or later, we go back to not knowing who we are or what the point is all over again.
1: You got this woman to come to your hotel room in the middle of the night. And when she came in, you were sitting on a chair. We talked about it. Do you remember?
0: The first time I met my ex-girlfriend, it was in the street in Melbourne. It, sorry, in Melbourne. <laughs> Stagecraft, you can't teach it. <laughs> and it was a good meeting, it was a solid meeting, it was a textbook textbook meeting. I've met new people in all sorts of ways. I've met, I've met people through friends, I've met people through work, I've met people online, I've met strangers in hotel rooms in the middle of the night. I once met a woman in a coffee shop queue just by talking to her, like in a rom-com genuinely exhilarating it was all I could do not to scream in her face I am functioning (laughs) I've met people in all sorts of ways for two main reasons firstly I want to be alive to the possibility of every fleeting moment of our lives to change everything forever to the idea that every new person we encounter could be the person that makes me the person I'm meant to be forevermore. and secondly I don't think it matters how you meet What matters is that you meet. Who gives a fuck how you met? It's what happens after that that's important. If that's a story you're telling from your 50th wedding anniversary, it becomes entirely clear how utterly fucking irrelevant it is. go,
2: go on, granddad, tell us again.
0: Okay, well, I was taking a shit in a bucket, wasn't I? And what was grandma doing? Come on,
2: committing a hate crime.
0: I don't think there's any ideal way, you know, there's no ideal way of meeting, really. People increasingly meet online, you know, but that's conversationally sneered at. I think that's a bit unfair. You see people thought, so, how did you guys meet? And see people just sort of bracing themselves. Okay, ready? Ready? Okay. We met online. You see people's faces flickering with,
2: oh, okay, ooh, Mm.
0: no, good for you. No, I don't care what I think. Good for you. It's seen as being unromantic, that's the thing. It's seen as being an unromantic compromise, but things, things that seems to be being incredibly romantic are a bit odd when you think about them, you know? Like people who've been together since school. That's meant to be incredibly romantic. It's a bit odd, really. We've been together since we were 12 years old. Oh God, have you? Okay. Uh, I'm not sure what that's making me feel, mate, but it's not all positive, I'll tell you that. <laughs> People meet at work, of course, that's phenomenally common. People meet at work, but that becomes harrowingly bleak if you think about it for any length of time, you know. Basically, what that means is you went to the place you have to go every day for money, and at some point you looked up and went, yeah. Yeah? Yeah! Hey, forever though, yeah? (laughs) Yeah, forever. All right, meant to be. Yeah, see you at lunch, all right. But the first time I met my ex-girlfriend, it was in the street, in the street, in Melbourne. And she said to me, um, we've met before, actually, but we hadn't, and so I told her so. because I wasn't in the mood for any of that bullshit. And she said, no, we have. It was two years ago in Edinburgh during the festival and you bought me some groceries in the middle of the night. And I was like, well, that clears that up, madam. I've never bought anyone groceries. Certainly not a stranger. Absolutely not in the Athens of the north. And certainly not in the middle of the night. I don't know what your game is. This has been a waste of my time and a waste of your time. I pray to Zeus our paths never cross again. Good fucking bye. And about three hours after that, I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I definitely did do that. But it wasn't groceries. That was the, that was the thing that threw me. Her use of the word groceries threw me off the scent of the memory in my own head. It was a banana and some milk. That's not groceries. If you ask someone to get the groceries and they turn up at your house with a banana and some milk, that person is either an idiot or a genius. This is all we need. And we're not going out. It's very odd when someone's got a memory of your life and you can't find it, can't find it anywhere in your own head. My friends, Andy and Miranda, insist that the first time I met Miranda, I was doing a show and she was sitting on the front row of the gig and I apparently said to her, unprompted, out of the blue, you, madam, have a fanny the size of Portsmouth Harbour. <laughs> now, I have no recollection of that incident at all. I know, I know instinctively, I know that comedically, if not socially, I would have built up to that. I'm not going to need a wine bar, but I'm strong on a stage, you know. You don't go straight in with that. You you lay a bit of groundwork like, hey guys, what is it with these harbours? Then you do it. (laughs) But they insist that I went straight in with that, out of nowhere, unprompted, unprovoked, you know. And I I can't remember it, and so I don't feel qualified to challenge them. It's a very odd feeling when someone says you did something and you know instinctively it can't quite be right, but you don't know what the right thing is. You just... just find yourself standing there and go that didn't happen all right what did something else the best thing to do is to just accept their version of events and that's what I've done I've accepted their version of events while trying to urge them to take it as a compliment it is after all a phenomenally well-kept harbour it is odd when you find yourself arguing over whose, whose memory of an event is the objective truth of, of that event. There's a theory that our clearest memories are the ones we've returned most to over time, so that each time we remember something, it shines a bit brighter in our mind. We shine it up a bit every time we return to it, which implies a certain value to our clearer memories and a sort of lack of value to, our, uh, to, to all the things we've forgotten, which I think is an unhelpfully simplistic way of looking at it, because quite often, It can feel like you don't remember something at all, you've got no memory of it at all. Well, whereas actually you do remember it, but just from a slightly different or completely different point of view. About four months ago, my mum was telling me about the time when my brother got knocked off his bike at first school. And I had no memory of this incident at all. She was like, I can't believe you don't remember it, it was horrible. He he was on his bike, on the main road, got knocked off his bike, went flying, it was really scary. I can't believe you don't remember it. And I was like, hang on, hang on. Was that when he got a new bike? That was genuinely my one recollection of the entire incident, you know. I don't trust my memory at all, you know, I don't trust my memory at all. I've forgotten people, I've forgotten incidents, I've forgotten places, you know, I've forgotten dates, I've forgotten appointments, you know. About 10 years ago, I was on a train to the airport to meet my then girlfriend. And on the way there, I became genuinely concerned that I wasn't going to recognise her face just sitting on the train, eyes closed, going, I can't see it, I can't see it. No, 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 well, that's Moira Stewart. (laughs) You see, I think most people probably remember roughly the same amount of stuff, but there are people that are paranoid about the amount, they remember constantly second guessing the inaccuracies of their own memory. And then there are people who believe they remember everything, who tell you they remember everything, who will say things like, I remember everything. Oh, it's a curse more than a gift. I wish I didn't. Oh, but I'd every word, every gesture. Oh, I remember everything. Don't worry about that. I wish I, I wish I didn't. I wish I didn't, but I do. I remember everything. I wish I didn't. Do you? I do. I wish I didn't. Oh, well, I can grant that wish. You don't. There you go. How's that? I'm a magical little pixie and you're a self-involved delusional turnip. Of course, of course you don't remember everything. No one remembers everything. Every one of our memories is nothing more than a fleeting glimpse of one side of a dodecahedron cast adrift in an infinite ocean of dodecahedra and yet you're genuinely telling me with a straight face, I remember everything. You just don't remember the stuff you don't remember. That's why it feels like you remember everything. For example, it feels like it feels like I remember my first ever dirty dream. I almost certainly don't. There were almost certainly dirty dreams prior to this dirty dream, but in the story of my life that I tell myself, this is my first ever dirty dream, because it's the first one I remember. What happened was, I was about 10 years old. In the dream, I was being chased across the cricket field by flying witches. That's not even it. I can feel a few of you being like, oh yeah. If I'd have known it was going to be this sort of show, I wouldn't have brought my kids, my gran, and the vicar. Go on, go on. I've been chased across the cricket field by flying witches. At some point in the dream, it became clear that I was not going to escape their evil witchy clutches. I was genuinely terrified, and out of nowhere, Some part of my 10-year-old brain said to the rest of my 10-year-old brain, just make it sexy. So I did. And it got pretty fucking sexy pretty fucking quickly. But well, I didn't know anything about sex at that age. It involved my penis going in somewhere, but I didn't know where. And so in the dream, all the witches had like a semicircular flap on their stomachs with like a, a thick brown ooze coming out of it. And I was like, oh, yeah, Daniel is ready to be a man. My point is that... That our memories are editorial. They're editorial, they're subjective, we strip out nuance, we strip out complexity, we strip out contradictions, you know, and sometimes our brain just gets rid of a memory that doesn't play into the narrative of our lives that we like to tell ourselves, you know, it's like, mate, I'm going to get rid of that memory because that is going to be tricky to justify on a daily basis and still believe that we are who we want to be, so I'm going to pop that in the incinerator, we're going to cross our fingers, no one ever mentioned that directly to our face ever again about four months ago a friend of mine told me that about six years ago I put my cock through her car window. I had no recollection of that incident. Her car window was open at the time, you know. There weren't kids trapped inside, it was not a heroic act. We'd been kissing, I walked her to her car like a gentleman. She wound her window down to thank me for my outdated, if charming, chivalry and I promptly stuck my cock through it like the most disappointing man on the face of the earth. Oh no, 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 no. (laughs) Not what I had in mind at all. And not surprisingly, my brain has got rid of that memory. All right, Dan, that has gone deep, deep down. So deep down that even when she talks us through it, point by point, you still won't be able to find that memory. Consider that a solid and you are welcome. I don't think we can trust our memories, can't trust our memories, can't trust our feelings. We definitely can't trust our feelings. About six months ago now, I felt like I had a hat on and I didn't. I was like, oh, someone's having a stroke, okay. Have you heard that if you smell toast, it can be a symptom of having a stroke? It's true, it can, but it can also, of course, be a symptom of being quite close to a toaster. And so every time I smell toast, I'm immediately scared that I'm having a stroke, and then I have the blissful double whammy of, on the one hand, excellent, no stroke, and on the other hand, yum, toast. I quite often confuse a physical sensation with an emotion, you know? I I thought I'd started hating my friend Alan for no discernible reason. I just hadn't had lunch. Alan's fine, he's always been annoying. I need to eat regularly to tolerate my friends. (laughs) And by the same token, I sometimes suddenly find myself alive to the possibility of every fleeting moment of our lives to change everything forever, to the idea that every new person we encounter could be the person that makes me the person I'm meant to be forevermore. And then I remember that I've not had a wank for nearly two weeks. I'm literally busting. I'm not of sound mind. You flick the tip, I'll paint the ceiling.
2: (laughs) But even... (laughs) Hmm. Even... Even
0: when it is, you know, a genuine feeling, you still can't trust your feelings. You, we feel better in the morning, we feel better after a nice cup of tea, and yet we still act upon our feelings like our feelings are the unswerving, immutable truth of who we really are. You know, that's our feelings. I think we find other people's feelings significantly easier to question. I find other people's feelings something between fictional and suspicious. If a friend of mine is, like, heartbroken one week and then a week later is like, Meet Claire! We're in love! I'm like, right, well, either that was a lie, yeah, or this is a lie. Either way, I refuse to fully invest emotionally in either one of these twin and doubtless temporary falsehoods. Hello, Claire. Lovely to meet you. Sorry about all that. Now of course, I'm being unfair there. I know I'm being unfair, because sometimes you have to commit to the new thing to get over the old thing. You have to move on in order to move on. We all know that, but it's such a high-risk gambit to take with a lifetime. You know, you move on, you meet someone else, you fall in love, you get married, you have kids, and then you realize you're not over this person from 10, 15, 20 years earlier. Nobody wants that. Nobody, nobody wants to end up like Ross getting married to Emily and saying Rachel's name. Okay, if you don't watch Friends, you won't get much from that, and I apologise for that, I really do. But by the same token, I don't understand how you expect to get the most out of a show when you refuse to do the background work. (laughs) Can't trust our feelings, can't trust our memories. There's a theory that every time we remember something, we're not actually remembering the thing itself. We're just remembering the most recent time we remembered it. So it's like this glacial... Fictionalisation of our own lives, this sort of incremental distancing of ourselves and the truth of our earlier selves, which means, when you think about it, if you extend that, our most accurate memories, the ones that we don't even know are in there until they come flooding out, brought forth by some sort of confluence of events. You see, I think we're full of memories, because we're sort of constantly remembering things that we know we're remembering, you know, people's names, our route to work, how to sit down, where a hat goes, but there's all sorts of other stuff going in that we don't know is being stored away, but it's been squirreled away in parts of our brain, you know, and it's only when we smell a certain smell or find ourselves in a place or next to a person or see something or hear something, it comes flooding out, you know, a pure, pristine perfect memory, sort of wonderful exultant moment of odd transportation. About four years ago, I was in Melbourne and I was trying a drink for the first time called Canotto, now if you're not familiar with Canotto, it's sort of like an aspirational fizzy drink, that's probably the best way of putting it and I opened this can, I had a taste of it I liked it immediately. I felt this odd affinity for the flavour. I felt like, like an emotional affinity for a taste. It was an odd, an odd sensation. It felt like when you meet someone and you've never met them before, and even before you've spoken to them, you really like them. And then you realise it's because they look like someone you know. And you're like, oh, it's because you look like Steve. Do I? You know you do. Come here. Look at you wandering around looking like Steve. That is what, that is what Steve does most of the time but I was opening this drink and I tasted it and I was like, what is, what is that? What is that flavour? What is that taste? What is that feeling? And then I remembered what it was When I was eight years old I would walk home from school every day across the cricket field eyes to the skies, ever vigilant But in the early
2: autumn
0: I mean it's there if you want it and I think it's I think it's worth bothering with but you know, it's up to you in the early autumn, the cricket field would be littered with discarded ice pop wrappers. Now, if you're not familiar with ice pops, like a long, thin, clear plastic tube filled with brightly coloured, artificially sweetened liquid, then frozen, you bite the end off, crunch it, suck it, chew it, lick it, it's up to you now, mate. You've paid your money, express yourself, do what you want with it. Oh, don't do that, don't do that, mate. And I'd walk home across the cricket field, scouring the floor, and if I saw a discarded ice pop wrapper that still had the remnants of an ice pop melted in the bottom of it, I would pick it up and I would suck it out. And that is the taste of canotto. Let me be very clear about this. It does not taste of ice pops. It tastes specifically of the discarded remnants of an ice pop mingled with the spittle of an unseen third party gently warmed in an early 80s late summer sunshine. And if I hadn't have opened that can and tasted that drink, I would never have known that my brain had stored that flavour. If I hadn't have tasted canotto, I would never have known again that I once sucked litter. (laughs) Because experience unlocks memory. We don't have access to all our memories because we have too many, and so we put them in in other things, in people, in places, in dates, in little trinkets, in, in photographs. I was recently looking at some old primary school photographs. I'm very pleased to be able to report to you that Lisa Matthewman was not, as I thought at the time, out of my league. She was fundamentally a nine-year-old girl. I don't think I'm saying anything particularly controversial when I say I don't think any nine-year-old children are intimidatingly hot. If you're looking at a nine-year-old girl holding hands with a nine-year-old boy and your first thought is she could do better for herself, then you're a fucking monster. I would ask Lisa every day, will you be my girlfriend? Every day she'd say, no, thank you, no, no, not for me, thank you. And after about three and a half years of this, her friend and envoy, Claire Noble, approached me one day, unprompted whilst getting off the bus, and said to me, Lisa says, all right then. And I had no idea what to do with that, I hadn't planned on that, I'd made no contingency for such a turning of events. And so what I did, thinking on my feet, this is quite brilliant, retrospectively, I didn't speak to, approach, or engage with Lisa in any way whatsoever for four days. After which time, Claire Noble returned to me and said, Lisa says it's not working out. And when I heard that, all I felt was a blissful wave of relief. And that may be all you need to know about me. I've got those photographs on my wall, in my hallway in my house at the moment. I'm, sort of, I'm turning the hallway of my house into a museum of my life, you know. For me, not for the public, that would seem premature. But I heard a theory that said that what the self is is a story that we tell ourselves about what's happened to this physical body up until this point in time. The stuff that's happened to this lump of meat up until now, you know. And if that's what we are, if that's all we are, just the story that we tell ourselves. I feel very much like I've, like I've lost track of the narrative. I increasingly feel that when I'm looking back on my life, I'm not going to remember this bit, you know. Not the show, don't take it personally. Great crowd, pleasure to be here. Just this bit of my life, you know. I feel like I could sleep through this section and still understand what was happening at the end, you know. If that's all we are, just a story that we, that we tell ourselves, I genuinely feel like I've lost track of the narrative, I've lost track of the chronology, I'm getting answers before I've asked questions. There's, there's characters popping up, they insist that they've appeared in an earlier scene. I just think it would be helpful if in the morning, when we woke up, we just heard... ...previously.
1: You got this woman to come to your hotel room in the middle of the night. And when she came in, you were sitting on a chair. We talked about it. Do you remember? She comes in, you're sitting on a chair, you do this.
0: I think you can tell that your life is largely devoid of tangible achievements. When on the nights where you watch a film rather than a bit of telly, you feel a genuine sense of accomplishment. <laughs> uh, no, I really put the time in tonight. Good for me. Yeah, good. For... Made a commitment, start to finish. Not a wasted evening. I feel a similar sense of unwarranted pride on the occasions I eat a complete apple. I'll buy all the fruit bowl fruits, I'll buy them all, but I'm left with apples because they're the most like a chore to eat. A banana immediately yielding. A pear, initially resistant, almost instantly acquiescent. After you've peeled an orange, eating it is essentially a victory lap. But an apple remains staunch throughout the process. It's like, no, go on, mate, have another bite then. Well, I dare you, because I'm still crispy. I'll scratch your fucking gums. (laughs) I eat the whole thing, core and everything, just to teach the cunt who's boss. I feel like... (laughs) I feel like... I live a life that is devoid of tangible achievements and littered with sickening privilege. And that the clearest sort of microcosmic example of that is the way that I instinctively romanticize physical labor. It's the most odious symptom of privilege. Oh, look at it, so noble, so noble and real, tangible. Look at them building, moving, stacking, building. Oh, what do I do? A word, a thought, beautiful, brave, gone. What do I do? so transient powerful but transient I'm wasting my grabbers on my swing pins what the fuck I want to build a
2: wall
0: and I do I would love to build a wall I'd love to build a dry stone wall and see it stretching out over a hilltop and know that I put it there but I know that in reality after 20 minutes I'd be like it's cold it's wet I can't get the internet on this stone (laughs) but any action any action undertaken and completed I think is disproportionately nourishing there's an odd satisfaction to any action largely because I think unlike a thought process there's a definitive end point to anything you know you do something it is then done you rewire a plug you do the washing up you paint a wall you read a book you watch a film That that is then done it feels oddly satisfying on, on Thursday nights in my house it's bin night every Thursday night after I put the bins out I walk back into my house and I genuinely feel like dealt with what's next world bedtime oh can do. Yeah, you stack them up mate, I'll smash them out of the park because I'm an achievement machine. Any action undertaken feels like a a a nourishing, satisfying achievement, you know. It's odd the things in a life that can feel like an achievement. You watch a film, you eat an apple, you do the washing up, you put the bins out, it's odd the things in a life that, that can feel like a failure, you know. I increasingly shave this bit of my face and this bit of my neck to create the duplicitous illusion of a longer, more chiselled face. And it works, that's possibly the most depressing thing about it, it genuinely works. People are like, ah, oh, have you lost a bit of weight in the head? <laughs> no, I've just engaged in some duplicitous topery, and you're my latest patsy. That's what's happened. Every time I do it, I feel like I'm fundamentally letting myself down in a heartbreaking way. I feel like if the, if the eight-year-old me could see me now, he'd be like,
2: have you forgotten that it's what is on the inside that counts?
0: I'd be like, yes. <laughs> Why don't you fuck off and have a wank over a witch? It's odd the things that feel like you're failing. You know, I shave my face tactically, I feel like I'm failing. I kiss someone I'm not in love with, I feel like I'm failing. I eat an entire packet of biscuits in less than 10 minutes, feel like I'm failing. I spend four hours in front of my television, my television on, but I can't see it because i got my laptop open. I'm Googling my own name feel like I'm failing. I walk down the street, my head turns t- t- to look at an attractive stranger without me even choosing to look. I feel like I'm failing in a fucking grubby, shameful way. Wo- I hate it. A- I mean, I mean, arguably, arguably I don't have to make the noises, but it lends the whole thing a helpful, if misleading, sheen of irony. I genuinely, I genuinely dislike it. I think, I think largely because it's hard to know, you know, where a legitimate aesthetic curiosity or pleasure ends and when a grubby, leering objectification begins. It's very clear on the ends of the spectrum where it's grubby, leering objectification. I was on a train. Saw this amazing thing. I, I saw so this man encourage his son, who's about 14 years old, to pervert a girl who was also about 14 years old. This girl walked past him, and this man nudged his son to get his attention. was like, "Hey, whoa, huh, whoa. It's a very odd thing to witness, you know. I think I've always assumed, you know, naively perhaps, that those sorts of attitudes are handed on almost unwittingly, embedded deep in societal habits and outdated traditions and assumptions. There's all linguistic laziness. You get a lot of it. I think in linguistic laziness, people using phrases without even really thinking about what they mean. I've had both men and women come to my house and tell me what it needs is a woman's touch. Well, firstly, that doesn't mean anything. And secondly, my house has got a pool table. All it needs is more chalk. (laughs) I've seen women use the word ladies as an insult when addressing a room of men to establish their high status in the situation. That's an odd and confusing moment of gender politics to unravel. I've seen men say they would never swear in mixed company as though that makes them a chivalrous knight of the realm. Well, firstly, All companies mixed, that's the nature of company. If you're not in mixed company, you're on your own in the room. (laughs) Secondly, you can't assume people will or won't swear according to whether they've got tits or a dick. I've seen men blanch at the word cock, I've seen women bellow the word cunt. Although that may have less to do with their linguistic liberalism and more to do with my looming proximity. (laughs) But that's how I've always assumed that these, these attitudes are handed on, almost unwittingly, you know. And then here, on this train, this man was consciously teaching his son how to be a fuck pig, you know. He's got, oh, okay boy, school is in session, here we go, there's one. When you see one, you lead with the head, lead with, lead, lead with the, lead with the head. And if a noise comes out, don't stifle the noise. That's where you express your individuality as a monster. Me? Me, I go for yum, 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 yum. <laughs> Very odd thing to witness. And it reminded me of, of when I was little. And sometimes my uncle would take me and my brother into his office and point out his topless calendar to us. He'd say, Hey lads, come in here and have a look at these rude ladies. Come in here and have a look at these rude That's what he'd call them. He'd call them rude ladies. Come in here and have a look at these rude ladies. Come in here and have a look at these ill mannered women. All I'm trying to do is keep track of the dates. They insist on whipping the tops off left, right and centre. Yes, Margaret, they're lovely, they're absolutely smashing, but all I require from you today is St. Swithin's Day. Thank you. Come on, lads, have a look. It's natural. Firstly, I don't think things being natural is indicative of them being benign or good. You know, people are like, oh, this contains only natural ingredients. Well, that could feasibly contain dog shit, earthquakes and a growing sense of unease. People like, oh, it's my instinct sweetheart, oh it's my instinct to have a look Treacle, it's my, you can't reform biology, it's my natural instinct sweetheart, it's my natural instinct. I think instinct is increasingly cited by men seeking to justify the current location of their errant penis. You know, oh, it's my instinct sweetheart, it's my instinct, sweetheart it's my instinct. If you open a car window I'm going to stick my cock in it, it's, <laughs> it's a story as old as time Treacle. I don't want to feel like I'm prey to my instincts, like I'm governed by some biological imperative. I don't think we're, we're betraying ourselves when, when we suppress an instinct. I think we're striving to become a better human being. It's my instinct to sniff the toilet paper after I wipe my ass. But I feel like I'm doing a better job of being alive on the rare occasions I ignore that urge. I don't want to feel like I'm governed by my instincts So when my head turns to look at a stranger without even choosing to look I feel like it must be that, it must be either the result of some outmoded biological imperative or some sublimated misogyny It makes me genuinely uneasy I'm fascinated by how and why I find what I find attractive, attractive I read an article that said that the reason men find high heels sexy is because they force a woman's body into an uncomfortable position that mimics lordosis the mammalian mating position I was like oh
2: god that is so grim
0: God really Is it not to do with just like A satisfaction in design No no it's because When a man sees a woman in high heels He wants to fuck her on the floor like a dog Like a dog God Is it not to do with colour Maybe Like a dog Don't turn away Like a dog Because I know that, I'm now suspicious of everything I find attractive. I find something attractive, I'm suspicious about how and why I find it attractive. Apart from green eyes. Because I know that comes directly from Big Trouble in Little China. But apart from that, I'm immediately wary of anything I find attractive. Like, like I don't really like high heels. I quite like flat shoes. I've noticed over the years that I'm attracted when a woman's feet turn in, when she sits down. But now that I've noticed that I've found that attractive, it feels impossibly predatory. I'm like, of course you like that. It's submissive, you fucking pig. Oh, oh, look at her feet. Look at her timid telltale feet. She won't put up much of a fight. (laughs) You know, I like, um, I like a dress with pockets in it, I don't know why, I just always have. Surely that is just a satisfaction in, in, in practical, well-drawn, aesthetically pleasing design. But I can't help but suspect that some part of my brain is absolutely convinced that those pockets are stuffed with Johnnies and lube. Now, of course, there's an argument that being attracted by someone's clothing is, if anything, more valid than being attracted by their body because our clothing is an expression of the self, of the personality, of the mind in a way that the body necessarily isn't. But I, I don't have a physical type. I've never had a physical type. I find it odd and creepy when people have a physical type and just spend their life swapping in and out various people of the same shape. I find that very, very odd. You know, people are like, oh, yeah, right, right. What I like, what I like is a nice pair of tits. There, yeah, I said it, I said it, I said it, I said it, a nice pair. That's what I like—a nice pair of tits. Oh,
2: what I like is a lovely, a lovely head of hair and uh, and and strong calves. Mm-hmm.
0: Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. What I like is uh, is uh, oh, uh, I like hips, hips, I like hips. I like red hair, red, red, red hair and hips. Oh, red hair, red hair and
2: hips. Oh, 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 oh. What I like are uh, uh, strong, strong hands that carry the promise but not the threat of violence. Alright, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, 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 I see that, I see that. What I like is, uh, oh painted nails, Oh, painted nails, Oh, God, don't ask me why, I don't know why, but fuck,
2: fuck. What I like is like a, a, a tiny cock and big balls, like an almost cartoonishly small penis. To top a couple of r- worryingly large testicles. I just don't have a physical type, and I've never,
0: and I've never had a physical type. But increasingly, saying to people that I don't have a physical type feels impossibly lascivious. It just feels like I'm saying, "Oh, I don't mind." Seriously, I just want to get it wet. I do not mind. I'll waggle it anywhere, sweetheart. Seriously, I do not. Mind the only sort of attraction to a stranger that feels to me like a legitimate attraction is conversational excellence, which is ridiculous, really, when you think about it. Like, like our personality is any less of a fluke than our body type, and yet I hold them in this odd hierarchy of attraction. You know, more than that, if I see someone who's, who's worked on their mind, who's improved their personality in some way, I'll feel drawn to them. If I see someone who's worked on their body, I'll assume a disparity between our worldviews. If I see someone who's got a very gym-toned body, it's a bit like seeing someone's got a personalised number plate on their car doesn't definitely mean that person's a dickhead, but it's a massive step in the right direction, <laughs> you know. It's very odd, you know, it's very odd, you know. But I do believe that sort of like conversational excellence is, 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 is sort of like, it's exhilarating because it feels like genuine, genuine human connection. When someone says something amazing, it just blows your mind. You know, it's, It's it's exhilarating. I quite often find myself waiting for a new person to say something amazing, which is not the best way to be amazed by a person. According to a timetable, uh, according to this, you should have uttered something phenomenal 32 seconds ago. But when someone cuts through that and just says something that blows your mind or changes your view on something or makes you laugh, it's it's genuinely exquisite. I was buying some uh, ginger beer and it had turmeric in it. This had purported health benefits, but I didn't believe any of that. I just thought it sounded quite tasty. So I took it up to the counter and I said, I'm buying this overpriced voodoo nonsense. And, and the lady behind the counter said, oh, it's, it's really good, that. And I said, is it though? Hmm, is it? And she looked at me with a twinkle in her eye and she said, it cures cancer. So. <laughs> and I was like, hello, hello, hello. And so I looked at her and I said, oh, that's good news because I've got cancer and she didn't flinch she looked straight back at me and said you're going to be fine and I was like yes legitimate boner I've got a valid bonk because that was top draw back and forth Such a courageous joke to make with a stranger, such a a leap of faith. There's nothing more cowardly than someone blurting out, I'm joking, I'm joking, come on, I'm joking, you know I'm joking, I'm I'm joking! Let it hang, you gutless cunt! (laughs) Nothing worse than explaining a joke. To explain is to have already failed. It's like explaining to a three-year-old why a magic trick's impressive, you know. Well, coins can't really do that, so... Or explain to someone why they should be in love with you. Well, that concludes the presentation. Um, You take as long as you need. I've hit you with a lot of stats. When someone cuts through that and just just makes you laugh, it feels genuinely... Wonderful. It feels like like understanding, like genuine mutual human understanding, like an actual human connection. That's why this feels so good. That's why this feels good. It's because it feels like mutual understanding. You feel like you're understanding each other in your mutual laughter, and you feel like you're understanding me, you know? You're almost certainly not, you I know? I mean, I, 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 I quite often go home after a show, people have emailed me to tell me how much they enjoyed the show and what they liked about it and what it meant to them and they are almost always wrong Just because something's a compliment, that doesn't make it right. I can't take pleasure in a compliment simply due to the fact it's a compliment. I can't dismiss criticism simply due to the fact it's criticism. You have to apply some level of critical faculty to everything. Some people do. Some people use the fact that criticism is criticism to dismiss that criticism. And go, well, haters gonna hate. What are you gonna do? Well, yeah, haters are gonna hate. In many ways, that's their raison d'etre. But you know, do you know who else is gonna hate? Concerned citizens raising a valid objection. So let's. I can't take pleasure in a compliment simply due to the fact it's a compliment, you know. That's not graceless, it's just common sense. Like if someone says to me, oh mate, you're the world's best long jumper, that is objectively a compliment, but I know that is at best an administrative error, or at worst a cruel joke I do not understand. It's depressing getting emails from people who, you know, I, I do a show, I feel like I've connected, I've spoken to people, I've shown them my heart, my soul, my mind, they've got it. I get home, I open an email, I fucking haven't. It's harrowing, you know, I get I get very odd emails. Quite often, people that are on my email list want to forward, um, the information from the email list onto a friend of theirs who's not on the email list. They accidentally hit reply rather than forward. It comes straight back to me. I got an email once off a woman that said, this is the guy I was telling you about. I think the way he handles his autism is incredible. (laughs) And I wasn't like, how dare she? I was like, oh, I, I don't want people thinking I'm claiming credit where I don't deserve credit. So I wrote back, I was like, I don't think I am. Sorry, thanks though, bye. But it's hard to know how engaged you should be with someone else's misunderstanding of who you are, you know. (laughs) And so I get these... These emails, I have a compulsion to correct them. I also have a compulsion to just, to just ignore them, you know. I mean, th- there are things that make it more likely that I will engage with the content of an email. I mean, if it's got, like, a direct question about sort of, t- sort of t- ticketing or box office or admin, I'll deal with that. I've not got an agent or a manager. If it's got, like, a venue issue or a technical thing or, like, an interesting link or something helpful, you know. Or, seemingly, if it's from a woman's name. Now... Now, that's not a conscious rule I've made for myself. It's a definite pattern that's emerged over the years, though. Seemingly, I can genuinely be attracted to a woman by nothing more than her name in my inbox. It's like, oh, Barbara Hanratty. Hello. You sound like the sort of woman I could love forever. Let's have a look at what you've got to say. And then I open it up. It's invariably a spam email, and I'm like, hmm, well played. It's interesting. As a younger comedian, I would see old comedians lingering at the back of the room after they'd been on, hoping a woman would come and talk to them. I would find that impossibly bleak. I would think, that diminishes you, it diminishes them, it diminishes the art we all claim to be serving. I will never do that, and I don't. I never have done that, I never will do that. But I have, over the course of my career, gone home after a gig, checked my email, Googled someone's name, had a look at a picture of them, and then replied. So it's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting where you draw the moral boundaries in your life. And of course, in spite of everything, I still find people attractive, strangers in the street. I walk past them, my head turns, skin, lips, eyes, hair, legs, I find them attractive. My head turns, my stomach flips, a little noise emerges from my mouth without me even choosing to make it. But I don't wanna feel like I'm prey to the same petty tyranny of physicality that these fuckwits I despise are. So I find myself flirting with people, increasingly desperate for them to say something amazing so I can relax about wanting to fuck the living shit out of them
1: you got this woman to come to your hotel room in the middle of the night and when she came in you were sitting on a chair we talked about it do you remember she comes in you're sitting on a chair you do this she turns around
0: about eight years ago I had a video projector loved it made videos massive and one day one day the bulb popped. Very easy to replace a bulb in a video projector, but rather than doing that, I thought, no. What I'm going to do is, I'm, I'm going to take this video projector apart. The better to understand this thing that has brought me so much pleasure over the years. And so I'm with nothing more than my overconfident curiosity and a screwdriver of the wrong size. I dismantled this piece of technology I did not have the wherewithal to comprehend. I stared aghast at the pieces strewn across my living room carpet, promptly lost some crucial components, was unable to reconstruct what remained. And what I've got left of it sits in a box in my loft gathering dust. And I feel like at some point, I've done something very similar with my personality. I've got a bit curious, I've opened it up, I've had a look, and now I cannot understand how it ever truly functioned. This sort of introspective doubt uh, is not exclusive to people that are on their own in the world I don't think you know I've got friends of mine in couples and quite often a friend of mine will confide in me about a doubt in the relationship or a bit of sadness you know or loneliness or uncertainty and I find that a bit annoying if I'm honest firstly I'm oddly possessive it seems over doubt and loneliness and uncertainty and secondly it does feel a bit like complaining to a homeless man about your pillows Seriously, mate, you're better off where you are. They make me wheezy. I've never been in love with someone at the same time as that person has been in love with me I've been in love with people before they've been in love with me I've been in love with people after they've been in love with me I've been in love with people who've never been in love with me I've had people be in love with me when I'm not in love with them That's a genuinely odd situation to find yourself in If you've always told yourself you're the hapless romantic victim in the situation To find yourself on that end of the scale is an odd confronting moment of realisation If you'd have told the eight-year-old me that one day someone would like me and I wouldn't like them, that would have been as unfathomable to my prepubescent brain as you telling me that one day I would turn down pudding and say I was already quite full. But I've never been in love with someone at the same time as that person has been in love with me. Now, some people would look at that immediately, I think, and say, oh, do you think on a subconscious level you're deliberately self-sabotaging by falling in love with people deliberately on a subconscious level that you know are not in love with you? And to that I say two things, firstly, fuck off, Freud, why don't you go to finger your mum? How's that? Yeah? How's that? Hmm? And secondly, yeah, maybe, fair point, maybe, yeah. Of course I've thought about it, I'm, I'm, I'm 36 years old, I live alone, I've got no kids, I'm not in a relationship you know, It becomes hard to keep telling yourself you've just not met the right person when you've met a litany of legends You're bound to start wondering if you're the problem, you know you, you'd, you'd have to be a phenomenal douchebag to get to that point in a life and be like, as planned every day is a 24 hour highlight reel I'm doing it and doing it and doing it right you know, you, 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 I think it's perfectly normal to try and find some sort of understanding of how you are, who you are to sort of look at your own baggage try and work out you know, who, you, who you've become you know, I mean, I mean, everyone's got baggage you know, I mean, if you meet an adult and have got no baggage then you're in the film Big stop looking at him like that, he's 12 and he's missing Towards the end of last year, start of this year, I thought I'd spotted a pattern in my life I where would, I would meet someone, I would fall in love with them, that person would not be in love with me, I'd then meet someone else, let's call that person, Person B. I would then essentially use Person B to distract myself from the ongoing heartbreak of Person A not being in love with me, whilst consistently citing my heartbreak over Person A to Person B as a justification for not fully committing to person B until person B would grow weary of this charade, move on with her life, meet someone else and become happy and when that would happen, I would feel a blissful wave of relief. And that may be all you need to know about me. I'd feel this odd combination of sadness and failure on my part but genuine happiness for her, genuine happiness, like a a kind-hearted prison guard after a particularly audacious escape plan had gone very well indeed. I'd be like, you go for it. Yeah, you live your life. I'd leave if I could.
2: Yeah.
0: It's oddly confronting thing to notice in my own behavior, this sort of odd pattern of behavior. It was horrible. Not least because I spent my entire adult life telling myself and audiences who have paid that I am a prophet of the heart with a phenomenal emotional capability way beyond the reckoning of mere mortal man. And yet everything was starting to point to a rudimentary, selfish and cowardly fear of commitment. Or to put it another way, early-season Chandler. (laughs) Nobody wants that. I'd spent my entire life telling myself this story about me, and I was this sort of brave, bruised-hearted, romantic idealist. And here was another story emerging, where I was much less that, and much more an emotional wrecking ball with a mid-sized penis sticking out the side of it. Sure, undeniably an amusing image from a distance. Up close, utterly undignified and surprisingly damaging. Once I'd spotted spotted this pattern of behaviour in my life, all my actions became suspect, my motives became incredibly suspect. Now, of course, it's very hard to accurately identify our motives about Seven months ago now probably, my friend Debbie was talking to me about a moon cup. I'd not heard about moon cups and she was talking me through what a moon cup was. If you're not familiar with a moon cup, it's a, it's a tampon and sanitary towel alternative made from the moon. <laughs> Guys, bit of fun, not made from the moon. It's, it, it's, it's the last night and I'm getting wild. It's not made from the moon. It's not made from the moon, I'm just having a bit of fun with you. It's made, um, from silicon I believe you pop it in it catches the blood you pop it out you rinse it off you go again that's the chant and when my friend Debbie was explaining this to me You know, I could see all the empirical upsides of a moon cup and they are many and varied. Environmentally very sound, no danger of toxic shock syndrome, fiscally very astute in the mid to long terms, but I couldn't help but be a bit squeamish. I was like, oh, what, but you've got to rinse it out. Oh, I don't know how I feel about that. And my friend told me immediately that my squeamishness was clearly the result of some latent misogyny. And I was like, I don't think it is. I can't rule it out, though, that's the problem with latent misogyny, it's quite far back. I mean, I am uncomfortable around strong, powerful women, I know that much. I mean, I'm also uncomfortable around strong, powerful men and strong, powerful dogs, to be fair, so... Maybe the strength and the power more than the femininity. I thought about it, I thought, no, I don't think it is that, I think it's just the fact that it's blood in a cup that's making me wince. I think if I walked into my kitchen and saw someone rinsing a nosebleed out of an egg cup, I'd still be like, "Oh mate, do you after? That's where I drain my veg." Anyway, about two weeks after that, I was talking to another friend of mine about moon cups. She'd not heard about moon cups, and I was explaining to her what a moon cup was. And at some point, she said, "Oh, what? and You got to rinse it out? I don't know how I feel about that." And I was like, "Yes, right." Went back to my first friend. I was like, "Oi, I've got one of your lot. Giving it what I reckon." And my first friend told me, with certainty, that my second friend was clearly the gender equivalent of an Uncle Tom. That she was feigning unease at her own menstruation because she was so enthralled to a patriarchy she didn't want to intimidate or unnerve a man. And I was like, I mean, I can't rule it out. <laughs> but it does feel like a massive call to make. Or at least that's what I thought had happened until my friend Debbie came and saw this show Uh, about four nights ago now and said to me afterwards that's not what happened you've conflated me and Lisa there into one person and that's not exactly what happened but I think my point is sound my point being that it's very hard to identify our motives accurately. Once I spotted this pattern in my life, you know, I became very suspicious of all my actions. I had this ulterior, grubby, cowardly, self-serving motive all the time. My entire adult life, I've been horrified by the idea of, of leading someone on, of taking advantage of someone, using someone. That's one of my biggest fears. It's that, injections, throwing up till I can't breathe, and flying witches, they're the big four. What a night that was, and so any time, any time I've found myself in a situation where an emotional balance in, where an emotional imbalance rather has been arising, I've taken steps to address it. Head on because I don't think people have sole responsibility for their own feelings. I don't believe that. I don't think people's feelings are their own business. I think we have a mutual responsibility for each other's emotional well-being. So I've taken steps to address any emotional imbalance. I've said, look, I just want to be very clear at this stage. I'm not really looking for anything serious. I'm having fun, but I don't want to lead you on. I'm not really emotionally available in any sense, really. I'm still quite sad over this thing that happened, still working through that. I just don't want to t- take advantage. I don't want to lead you on. I don't want to use you. I just want everyone to know where they stand at this stage. And to begin with, that sounds like and feels like a responsible thing to do. But after you've heard yourself make various versions of that speech to various people over various continents over more than 10 years, it becomes a bit harder not to suspect a grubby little subtext throbbing underneath those noble words along the lines of, uh, hi. I um, hereby disavow myself of any responsibility relating to emotional consequences arising from actions undertaken hereafter. So uh, if you can sign here, here, initial here, here and here, we can begin a series of sporadic and increasingly heartbreaking sexual encounters. I became very suspicious that I was telling people I didn't want to lead them on just so I could then lead them on guilt-free. You know, I didn't want to be one of those people who's like, Don't get involved with me, Mary Beth. I'm bad
2: news. I I don't mind, Trevor. I love you, Trevor. Mary Beth, I killed your dog. Why did you do that, Trevor? I'm bad news. You need to be more specific in your warnings, Trevor. I'm a dog killer. I see that now, Trevor. I got a dead dog and a heart full of regret
0: pretty powerful stuff there
2: (laughs) but we've all met
0: people that think that by telling you they're an arsehole that mitigates the fact that they're an arsehole you know, you go, mate, you just behave terribly yeah, sorry mate, oh, I'm a bit of an arsehole (laughs) that's the thing about me, mate bit of an arsehole and there's not really anything I can do about that, is there not without changing the way I behave and the things I do and say so, (laughs) Mm-mm-mm. I became very suspicious that that's who I was, that's what I was doing. I was talking to, to a friend of mine saying that I thought I'd maybe been leading people on whilst trying not to lead them on, or you know, all, all this stuff. And my friend said to me, You text a lot. That was all she said. You text a lot. But it was all in her tone. It was far less like, You've done a lot in the garden, and far more like, That's a lot of ketchup for an adult. And I was on stage and I was talking about this, and after the show, a friend, of, a friend of mine who I'm friendly with came backstage and said to me, that's true that, you do treat women like that, that's true. And her certainty was horrible, it was brutal, it, it, it winded me, you know, and I was just stood there and literally all I could think was, well, it's not as simple as that. Because it's not as simple as that. I mean, I have undeniably treated people badly. I've, I've let people down, I've led people on, I've used people. I once, you probably won't believe this, but once I put my cock through someone's car window. I know, that's how I felt when I found out. But, but, but there's a massive difference between something you have done and something that you do. I have shat in the street, but I don't shit in the street. And the more I thought about this pattern, the less sufficient it felt as an understanding of who I was and what I'd done. You know, things have broken down in various ways for various reasons. Maybe i would just seen this pattern because that's what we do. We see see patterns because it's comforting. We see patterns, we make rules, we spy the unwitting face of Christ in a largely oblivious muffin. And I became suspicious of this pattern. Like maybe seeing this pattern was in itself an act of... (laughs) arrogant contrition a sort of form of of cowardice maybe it was worse than that maybe there was no pattern maybe this was all just a a mess just a heartbreaking mess of fear and desire and loneliness and desperation and doubt and hope I mean I don't want doubt I don't want to live in doubt I'm increasingly unconvinced by hope if I'm honest I am. I don't think it's the powerful force for change we're told it is. I mean, it can be, clearly it can be. It cannot. Can also be this oddly impotent static optimism, keeping people exactly where they are with their fingers crossed. You know, I, think, I think hope keeps people where they are. It tells people, just give it a minute, give it a minute. I think hope keeps people in relationships they shouldn't be in, it keeps people out of relationships they should be in. It stops people moving on, it stops people committing. Hope stops me soaking lentils. If I'm reading a recipe book and it says, soak the lentils overnight, that recipe book can go fuck itself. For two reasons. Firstly, I'm hungry now, it's already tea time. Secondly, anything could happen before tomorrow tea time. I'm not gonna put lentils into soap when I might be about to meet the one. If you know what you're having for tea tomorrow night, you've not left enough room in your life for magic. Oh well, I might as well put the lentils on. Nothing ever changes. I think hope is the opposite of action, it's the opposite of experience, it's the opposite of plans. Hope is a life kept full of little gaps just in case someone, somewhere, somehow changes everything. I don't want that, I don't want to live in hope, but neither do I want doubt. All I've ever wanted in a relationship is zero doubt. Just the absolute absence of any doubt. And and if you say that to a person who's in a relationship, They Say things like, oh mate, oh mate. Firstly, I find it interesting that people that are in a relationship feel at liberty to speak to people that aren't in a relationship like we are somehow their past. Whereas actually, we are their inevitable future. (laughs) Don't look upon me as a stage you've passed through triumphant. Look upon me as the ghost of Christmas yet to come. (laughs) Oh mate no one gets zero doubt mate it's a fiction it's a fairy tale that's not real love real love has doubt in it and doubt's good yeah it's good doubt's good because when you doubt it you question it and when you question it you strengthen it And maybe those people are right. I'm not saying those people are doing it wrong. They feel at liberty, seemingly, to tell me I'm doing it wrong, that I'm living some delusional fiction, that I'm holding out for something that's utterly impossible, that's sort of childish and naive, you know, but I'm not telling them they're doing it wrong simply because they've made some mental leap that equates love with doubt and fear and uncertainty. I'm not saying that. I would never say that, not my place. I'm not saying that those people are dysfunctional cowards who have settled for something less than perfect because they can't face being alone for more than half a day. I'm, I'm not saying that, guys, I would never say that. Not my place, not my place to say that. But people do go to Starbucks and insist that it's coffee. Because our, our experience governs our imagination of what could be possible. But maybe those people are right. Maybe they genuinely are right. Maybe there's no such thing as a sort of true love. Maybe the only thing that matters is time, time spent together. Maybe the only way to feel that genuine understanding, mutual understanding, is a shared backlog of life, you know, events and and emotions and memories. So maybe it matters less who we're with and more how long we're with them. Maybe we'd all be much happier if we stopped holding on for this one true love and just grabbed someone who wasn't a dickhead and got started. To go, all right, world's massive isn't it? Massive world, terrifying, full of cunts generally. You seem nice, I'm alright mostly. Do you want to stick together till one of us gets bored and or dies? Let's do this. Maybe those people are doing it right or maybe I'm doing it right or more likely maybe nobody is doing it right. Maybe there is no right way of doing it. Maybe every discussion about what the right way is is nothing more than a discussion about which hat to wear whilst pissing in the wind. Because if doubt and uncertainty and sadness and loneliness are inevitable, whether or not you're in or out of a relationship, why drag someone else into that fuckstorm? If you know all you've got in for lunch is dog shit sandwiches, have the common courtesy not to invite people round. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that as soon as we doubt something, that thing is immediately, implicitly wrong and should be dismissed forever. Of course, that's not the case, that's ridiculously simplistic. I've been reticent to the top of every water slide I've ever been on, they have all, without exception, been a genuine thrill ride. (laughs) But just because we can make our peace with something, that doesn't make that thing right, be that thing blood in our stool or doubt in our heart. We can normalize anything about our lives that we find frightening. We do it all the time. We're like, hey, guys, guys, we all bleed when we shit, right? Yeah, of course we do. To the beach. We can normalise, we can, we can sublimate, we can repress, we can create. Hope can make the wrong thing feel right. Doubt can make the right thing feel utterly wrong. How do you know? How do you know when, when holding on to something is delusional or, or when letting something go is courageous or heroic? How do you know? How do you know when, 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 when thinking of someone else's feelings is living a lie, a joyless lie? How do you know? How do you know when holding on to the idea that every fleeting moment of our lives could change everything forever is nothing? more than the careless cruelty of the self involved how do you know people say oh you know when you know that doesn't mean anything that doesn't address the problem you you cannot know for years then know in a second you can know for years and suddenly not know it took me a year and a half to realize i'd stopped enjoying pork belly I would still order it every time I saw it on a menu in a restaurant out of an odd sort of duty to a former self I'd be like, okay, well I see you've got pork belly here so I'll be ordering the pork belly because if I don't do that I'll start asking myself all sorts of other questions about what else has changed and who I've become so, <laughs> pork belly please and the pork belly would arrive I'd eat it, I'd feel bilious and sad and yearn for a salad. I think anything that we know about ourselves, that we know even the most fundamental things about who we think we are, if we expose those things to enough time, enough context, enough experience, they become utterly questionable. I, I increasingly have to ask myself, if I really am so good at being alone, so comfortable on my own, why have I sent quite so many people pictures of my dick? Because that is not the behaviour of a man comfortable and at ease in his own company. That is the behaviour of a lonely, desperate piglet with access to a modern mobile telephone. That's one at a time over a number of years, incidentally. You know, not all in one mad night. Groups end cry for help, you know. Although, having said that, about four months ago, I did take a picture of my penis with my glasses on it. And that remains the funniest thing I've ever seen or done. Seriously, if you've got access to a penis and some glasses, I don't know why you're still here. (laughs) Looks like a character out of The Raccoons. Specifically, Mr. Cedric Sneer. And if you're sitting there now thinking, he's got that wrong. There, There isn't a Cedric Sneer, it's Cyril Sneer. Don't fucking email me fucking email me, and don't come up to me afterwards and tell me, because you're wrong. Cyril Sneer is Cedric Sneer's dad, and my dick, with my glasses, looks like the younger of the Sneers. <laughs> fucking try and correct me on which cartoon characters my dick looks like, <laughs> the nerve of you people... <laughs> very hard to know anything about ourselves, you know, to know, to know, you know, anything about ourselves. At the moment, I feel like I know two things about myself beyond any shadow of a doubt. One, I have in my lifetime treated people badly, let people down, led people on, and two, I can't have biscuits in the house. Can't do it. I can either have just bought biscuits or I can have eaten all the biscuits. If you want to come to my house and have a biscuit, you've got a very small window of opportunity. You essentially have to be spying on my house, and frankly, that sort of creepy behaviour does not get rewarded with a biscuit.
1: You got this woman to come to your hotel room in the middle of the night, and when she came in, you were sitting on a chair. We talked about it. Do you remember? She comes in, you're sitting on a chair, you do this, she turns around. You look at her and say, for me, no and she leaves
0: about eight months ago i was here in this building i was in the the cafe at the front of the building i saw a man at a table on his own and after about five minutes i saw a lady arrive and she was like hey and he was like hey and then he closed his eyes and leaned up for a kiss hello like this but in the time it took him to close his eyes and lean up for a kiss hello the lady had turned away to take in her new surroundings as we all do in a new room. She's like, okay, exit, exit, potential threat, weapon, 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 weapon. (laughs) When she turned back, gave him a kiss and they went about their day. Now he'd been up in this position for just slightly too long. Not so long when it was overtly comedic and they could all laugh about it together and fall all the more in love. Just long enough that that man had been plummeting alone through darkness for a second and a half. Increasingly concerned that when he opened his eyes that woman had run away or the world itself had ceased to exist. And I saw that, I witnessed that moment in that man's life. No one else saw it, he felt it, I saw it. And that feels like a privileged and intimate understanding of that man. But of course it's not, of course it's not. And it would be disingenuous and delusional of me to claim that I know him based on that. I go, oh him? Yeah, no, I know him. Yeah, no, he, um, he plummets through darkness. Yeah, spread it with credit. Of course, that would be ludicrous, but that's how we form our understanding of everything based on our own experience of that thing. We all extrapolate, we all extrapolate our experience to to rules about the world, About, about how long ago? Five months ago. A friend of mine said to me, I've got to get Caroline a birthday present. Now, clearly, it's very tricky when you've got to get someone a birthday present because ideally what you want is a present that shows them how much you love them, how much you know them, and that you heard them say something offhand about six months earlier. Sometimes, of course, people don't bother with any of that. About four years ago at Christmas, my mum and dad bought me bagpipes. I had dropped no such hint. At no point had I said, I'll tell you what I'm looking for this Yuletide season. Uh, More discordant noise and a genuine challenge for my asthma. Now... If, and I know this is asking a lot, if those two disparate elements could somehow come combined in tartan, Christmas morning was amazing. There was a big parcel, smaller parcel on top. I went to open a small parcel first. I said, no, no, open a big one. I opened a big one, it was bagpipes. I opened a small one, it was a book about how to play the bagpipes. And they said, we didn't want you opening the the big, the the, the small one first, working out that the big one was gonna be bagpipes. And I was like, that wouldn't have happened. I could have opened eight books about how to play the bagpipes, nine DVDs about how to play the bagpipes, and a ticket to a residential bagpiping course. This would have still caught me off guard. (laughs) But my friend says to me, I've got to get Caroline a birthday present. And so I said, get her a book plug. Because that's the sort of thing I say when I don't really want to engage with what's happening in other people's lives. One of the good ones. I said get her a butt plug and she said women don't use butt plugs and I was like what she went women don't use butt plugs they're not for women I was like right well I mean I was joking but also I don't think you can say that and she was like they don't we're not for women women don't use butt plugs and I was like no clearly you don't use a butt plug clearly but can you genuinely not imagine somewhere in the vastness of the world a woman may occasionally enjoy a butt plug she was like "No." We're not for women. Women don't use butt plugs. I was like, this is going to be a very hard argument for you to ever win. Because all it takes for me to prove you wrong forever is a single black goose with a butt plug up it. This is what we all do. We all extrapolate our experience to a sort of universal experience. Without even realizing we're doing it, we take our life for life, our world for the world, our experience for an objective, universal experience. I was in a cafe about four months ago and I ordered eggs on toast and they arrived poached. I know, right? He puts them down. I turn to him and say, What the fuck's this, mate? He says, uh, That's eggs on toast. I'm like, It's not, is it, mate? Go on, have another look, go on. That's poached eggs on toast, isn't it? Uh, Eggs on on toast, unspecified, uh, unspecified eggs on toast. Scrambled, mate, don't be a cunt. (laughs) I was on a bus, I heard someone's ringtone go off on their phone. It's the same tone I use as an alarm to wake me up every morning. I turned round, they weren't in bed. I didn't know what the fuck was going on. (laughs) Just standing there on a bus thinking maybe there really is no such thing as a universal experience. I don't think there is such a thing as a universal experience. I I think our most common experience is not universal. Our rarest experience is not unique, you know. I don't believe in a universal experience or a universal truth. Can't think of anything that's always true. I can only think of one thing that's never true and that's the phrase, you've got your whole life ahead of you. That is literally never true. You could bellow that up a pregnant woman and it would still be unclear and politically charged.
2: <laughs> I'm not
0: even sure that I believe in a shared experience, you know. I don't think we can share experience. We, we, we can be in the same place at the same time, we can be privy to the same events in the same way, but we can't share our experience, our experience is necessarily our experience. That's the nature of experience. If you think you can share an experience, try sharing a Greek salad with my dad. Best of luck getting any feta. He'll experience a fully-featured Greek salad. You'll experience some cucumber, some tomato, and a begrudging respect for his ungodly speed. Because our experience is necessarily insufficient. Our, our experience is necessarily incomplete. But we do this. We extrapolate our experience, sort of rules about the world. For a long time, for a long time, I've believed very strongly that a cup of tea should never cost any more than 50p. Yeah? And if, if this is getting too dangerous for you, you can get the fuck out because I refuse, I refuse to pull my punches on tea pricing. <laughs> Clearly, loose leaf tea, infusion tea, that's a different kettle of fish. If, if they're using the kettle of fish, that's an added expense to take into account but tea bag and hot water tea, any more than 50p, it's fucking rude fucking rude I've believed this for years and I've told people this at length, at volume, and uninvited for many years if they're drinking tea, if they're about to drink tea, if their name's got a tea in it, if they're approaching a tea junction I have hit them with the tea roots and I've told them that I believe a cup of tea should never cost any more than 50p and about six months ago I was in my car with my friend Leisha and I was telling her, I said, it's fucking rude isn't it, it's fucking rude how much is a single tea bag when they buy them in bulk, like 3p, 3p 3p a teabag when they buy them in bulk. That is 47p profit on a single cup of fucking tea. How much fucking money that these racketeering shit dogs need to fucking well make? Fuck! Fuck! And she said, no, I see your point, I do. But I think in certain situations, it's different, isn't it? If you're sitting in a cafe, 35, 45 minutes, one cup of tea on the go, I think it's fine in that situation to charge a bit more, isn't it? Because they've got their hidden costs, they've got the infrastructure costs, they've got the heating, the furniture, the water, the electricity. I think it's fine in that situation to charge 170, 180 for a cup of tea. And I was like,
2: yes, you are right about that. She was like, why are you
0: talking in that voice? I was like, because I'm too embarrassed to use my own voice at the moment. So what I'm doing is putting a little bit of distance between me and the things I've been saying to strangers for more than a decade with a funny little voice. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we shouldn't form our understanding of things based on our experience of those things, but we need to hold on to the fallibility of what we believe, onto the paucity of what we've experienced. We need to articulate that when putting information into the world because every word we say has the troubling potential to live forever. Even a lot of the sort of stuff you guys say. Seriously, guys, I mean, I'm, you know... I'm a phenomenal phrase maker with a poet's heart and a craftsman's eye for detail. It is a curse more than a gift and it goes with the territory that this shit will stick. But even your leaden linguistic lumberings that dribble out of your gauntless maws into a shit-strewn gutter on a daily basis, even those will linger on, altering lives you will never directly experience in ways you can't yet imagine. I, did not taste a parsnip until I was 19 years old because my grandma once told my mum that parsnips were not worth bothering with. (laughs) Words have consequences. I'm 19 years old, I'm at university, everyone's trying new things. I taste the sweet, starchy delight of parsnip and all I can think is, What else is there? It doesn't matter how much we've experienced. Our experience is still insufficient grounds to assume our understanding of anything is objective or conclusive. Be that thing, an idea, a place, a book, a film, a person, specifically a person. I don't think that we are everything we've done up until this point in time. I think that's insufficient. I think what we are is everything we have done and everything we may yet do. I think that we exist on two sliding scales one of possibility and one of experience when you're born you're 0% experience, 100% possibility when you die you're 0% possibility, 100% experience 0% possibility no one looks at a dead body and says give it a minute seriously this is classic granddad. give him a minute and fetch my special gloves, I'm not falling for that again by the same token It's very hard to not find yourself looking at a newborn baby feeling oddly fascinated by the fact they've done nothing. Look at you. Done nothing, have you? Done nothing wrong, eh? Made no
2: mistakes. Hmm? Don't make the mistakes I've made!
0: (laughs) He's crying again. But most of us live in the middle of those scales where possibility and experience are tangled together in a confusing mess. So yes, once I tried to finger a cat. But one day, I may learn to scuba dive. Yes, once I ate a four-dessert sampler plate alone in a restaurant whilst it slowly shut down around me. But one day, I may do that again. I may tile my bathroom. I may learn to fly a plane or sail a boat. I may have kids. I may have grandkids. I may get a dog. I may die alone. But once I did shout at a charity worker, fuck off, mate. How many direct debits have you got? I've been on 37 beaches in my life with a margin of error of plus or minus three beaches. But one day I may start a betting agency called Bet Mental, where the slogan is come and go bet shit crazy at Bet Mental. You can bet on anything you want, but it has to be a bit mental. Alright mate, I'll bake you a cake every day for a year and a half if you don't weep again before the 14th of October. You've gone shit crazy. <laughs> and that's who we are. We're all this same unfathomable mess of past and possibility of the people that pass us by, the people that pass them by, the people we will never encounter. We're all this same unfathomable, unknowable mess.
1: You got this woman to come to your hotel room in the middle of the night, and when she came in, you were sitting on a chair. We talked about it, do you remember? She comes in, you're sitting on a chair, you do this, she turns around, you look at her and say, for me, no, and she leaves. Do you remember? And I said, no Izzy, that didn't happen.
0: Now I look like a farter. So if I find myself in a situation where a smell has arrived, I can sense the gathering weight of strangers' assumptions. They look at each other, they look at me, they look back at each other as if to say, mystery solved. all misunderstood on a daily basis in similar ways to that it happens to us all all the time you know people have opinions on people they've they've, they've never spoken to that they've never met it's very different but when you've articulated to a person who you think you are what you think what you feel what you believe and that person still sees someone different when they look at you that's an odd dispiriting situation about Four months ago, I was in Sydney and I was having lunch with an ex-girlfriend of mine. At some point in the meal, I suggested after the lunch, we went and had a look in a shop. And she said to me, you don't shop. It's very odd to come face to face with a glimpse of someone else's understanding of who you are and to not only not recognize you, but to have no idea where it came from. I was just like, well, where do you think I got my shoes? They weren't a kind-hearted prank of a benevolent cobbler. I bought them in a shop. Now, people say, what does it matter? what does it matter what other people think of you that can't change the fundamental truth of who you are but there is no fundamental truth there is no fundamental truth of who we are there is only what people think we are we are those people we ourselves are those people there's only what people think and what people think becomes what people say becomes information in the world and on and on and on so if I see information about myself in the world that I know to be false, be it willfully misleading or unintentionally duplicitous, I feel this need to challenge it, this duty to challenge it on behalf of myself and the people who do now or did once love me. If I see that a stranger online has said that I once played naked scramble or a friend of mine tells me that I habitually treat women badly or a newspaper calls me an arrogantly unpleasant man, I feel this compulsion to write the truth in words of fire across the sky that I've never played Naked Scramble that I may be clumsy, I may have been hurtful I may have been self-involved but I'm never willfully, habitually cruel and that my arrogance is in actual fact a pretty audacious satire on the sickening bullshit of faux humility that is strangling the entertainment industry worldwide but I feel an equal compulsion to not do any of that to not engage with it in any way to not even try and correct these misunderstandings not least because the words I am not arrogant burning in fire across the sky is a relatively mixed message but also to try and correct someone's understanding of who we are is utterly heartbreakingly futile We can't control which words, which deeds, which misremembered moments of our lives are going to shine out among the infinite and persist over oceans and countries and decades nestled in a distant human heart as an insufficient definition of our entire lives. People remember whatever they remember. They can't choose it. We can't control it. Maybe understanding, genuine mutual understanding is impossible. Maybe human connection is nothing more than an optimistic delusion that we foist into the gaps before we fully articulate who we think we are. Maybe no one ever really knows anyone, least of all ourselves. Maybe that is genuinely impossible. Because if we are, as I think, everything we have done and everything we are yet to do, then our understanding of that, our understanding of who we are, our understanding of our very selves can never be comprehensive, can never be conclusive, can never be objective. It's doomed to constantly be limited by our own insufficient imaginations of what may happen and our flawed and meager memories of what has. Maybe we tell each other a bit about ourselves because a bit is all we know.
1: You got this woman to come to your hotel room in the middle of the night and when she came in, you were sitting on a chair. We talked about it. Do you remember? She comes in, you're sitting on a chair, you do this, she turns around. You look at her and say, for me, no and she leaves. Do you remember? And I said, no Izzy, that didn't happen. She said, yeah
0: it did, we talked about it. Do you remember? And I said, no Izzy, we didn't. What we talked about was food. And at one point, in that conversation about food, about a food item I did not enjoy, I said the words, for me, no. And you were so tickled with that phrase, we then proceeded to improvise a series of hypothetical scenarios where its use would be brutally inappropriate Including the one you've just recounted back to me there as a real incident from my own actual life Why why are you even here? Why are we even friends? Why have you come to my house for food if you thought I once did this? I've never done this And she slammed her hands into the table and she flung her head back and she said, that is so fucking funny. And after a minute, she settled down and I went to get some pudding. I once told a story about myself, and I did not recognize it. There you go. Thanks for coming. Hope you liked it. Thanks a lot. Cheers.